0: You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, ChristianHumanists.org.
1: You unlock this door with the key of imagination. Beyond it is another dimension: a dimension of sound, a dimension of sight, a dimension of mind. You're moving into a land of both shadow and substance, of things and ideas you've just crossed over in. The Twilight
0: Zone. Hi, and welcome to episode 200 of the Christian Humanist Podcast. You'd think this would be some sort of celebratory episode, and in some ways it is, but the actual celebration episode will come next week. This week, as you already know if you listened to yesterday's City of Man, we're doing a special network wide um, set of episodes. Crossover episodes based on the 1950s sci-fi anthology series, The Twilight Zone. So I have two people, well I have one person from another podcast and one person who appeared on Profiles a couple of years ago and we managed to talk her into coming here. Uh, we'll start with her. Christina Bieber-Lake, who is the Clyde S. Kilby professor of English at Wheaton, has, uh, has agreed to come on the show. How's it going, Christina?
1: I'm doing well. How are you, Michael? I'm pretty good. You know,
0: all things considered this time of the semester. Also joining us is an adjunct professor of English at Houston Baptist University, uh, the Christian Feminist Podcast, Katie Grubbs.
2: How are you doing today?
0: Uh, The same as I was a moment ago when Christina asked. I don't have (laughs) I don't have two sets of answers I'm afraid.
2: How are are you (laughs) Katie? I'm doing very well. It's been very hot here in Houston but we're supposed to get some cooler weather over the weekend so that's very exciting.
0: And what does cooler weather mean in Houston?
2: Mid mid seventies during the day, mid fifties at night. Because
0: I was going to say it was seventy here today, and I've been complaining about it all day long. Yeah, it was warm. That would be wonderful. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, as I said, our episode today is about the Twilight Zone, and each show is doing a number of different Twilight Zone episodes, and the ones that have fallen to us are the Howling Man and the Masks. Now, um, the entire run of The Twilight Zone is available for free on Netflix. I believe it's also it's free on Netflix if you pay for Netflix. And I believe it's also free if you subscribe to Amazon Prime.
2: It I'm is. Not... That's how we watched it. Okay. Mm-hmm.
0: So I would highly recommend, if you don't know the episodes The Howling Man and The Masks, that you go watch those episodes because we're going to spoil the heck out of them. And The Twilight Zone is certainly watchable if you know the twist endings, but... Uh, they it depend pretty heavily on the twist endings, wouldn't you say?
2: Yes, I think so. Yeah. If
0: you haven't seen The Howling Man, I'm about to give the plot of it. So uh, pause the show and go watch The Howling Man. All right, I warned you. The Howling Man features a um, some sort of they call it a hermitage, not a monastery, in Central Europe. An American traveler stumbles into it on a rainy night, and he hears a man howling from the from the uh, dungeon. The uh, the the, mon- the monks, the hermits call him uh, tell, tell him uh, not to do anything about it the The guy is the devil, and they 've trapped him and that 's why uh, that 's why there hasn 't been any violence in the world lately it 's like one thousand nine hundred and nineteen or something. Um, And uh, eventually, of course, the man lets him out It turns out he was the devil And uh, the episode ends with him talking to a woman in his house And telling her that he has trapped the devil in his closet So that is the plot of The Howling Man And we should be able to discuss it now Katie, The Twilight Zone is one of the most literate shows Of the early days of television Uh, I would like to begin by talking about the literary antecedents to this episode What works of art does it descend from?
2: So um, this, this episode is, from the beginning, very, very clearly gothic in nature. Um, in terms of the setting in particular, as the man wanders up to the hermitage, you get this really, really broad kind of vista of the hugely um, ruined house. It's kind of tumbled down, and um, it's like a black silhouette against the sky. The uh, brother Jerome tells him that the house was refurbished, them to live in but clearly not all of it because it definitely looks like it's tumbled down which kind of suggests some some things like Poe's The Fall of the House of Usher um, but it's not just setting it's also to do with plot S- so that he comes to the hermitage and there's actually a long history of kind of sinister monks and nuns um, which obviously these are not they are not monks these men that they're kind of pretending to be but it's strange because they're not dressed like monks they're dressed like kind of biblical patriarchs with crooks. <laughs> um, they it looks all... <laughs> very
0: much like Moses from the Ten Commandments,
2: don't you think? <laughs> That's exactly <laughs> what my husband said when we watched uh-huh. it together. They all somehow look exactly like uh, Moses from the Ten Commandments. And uh, the thing that s- sprung immediately to mind for me is the the novel The Monk, a romance, Ooh. which is 1796. It's Matthew Lewis and uh, hugely convoluted, kind of scandalous plot revolving around various sinister religious personages. And so that's kind of that's kind of how it was for me. Um, the idea of hermits, that's another gothic trope. The idea that people he comes to the house and people just immediately begin saying things like leave, leave now. We can't tell you why, but go. Just flee. <laughs> Definitely <Leave." laughs>
0: don't go down into the dungeon.
2: Yes, don't go near that locked door. That's not a good idea. All of that is very very gothic. And it was it was kind of an interesting thing to experience the gothic in a 25 minute tv episode i thought it was really interesting and maybe also a little bit of some kind of Faust. i mean nobody's making a deal with the devil but you have satan as a a person on screen interacting with people um using his charm to affect so that that was another thing that uh, occurred to me but is there anything else you guys maybe could add that i didn't already mention about that
1: no that's right Gothic. Absolutely. My my f- <laughs>
0: my favorite moment is when I forget what he says, but Jerome, you know, utters some wham line. And then of course the thunder immediately oh, peels yeah. behind him. And we, we slide into a Dutch angle. Yep.
2: Oh yeah. I, <laughs> Absolutely.
0: We, I think we also should mention that this is a version of the Pandora's box myth. myth that oh, that sure. <laughs> our, our intrepid hero here has unwittingly unleashed evil onto the world. Uh, yes. Not entirely, because there was some evil, but he, he 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 talks about how like that's ordinary evil, and now now you've unleashed um, the the worst kind of evil. But yes. yeah, I think this definitely belongs to the to the to the Gothic tradition. Well, it it also reminds me a little bit of Henry James in mm-hmm. its confrontation between an American and a group of Europeans. Christina, what would you say this episode's attitude toward Europe in general, and especially European Catholicism, is?
1: I think that's a great question, because you're right. Um, There's a longstanding American tradition, not just Henry James, but Herman Melville does this, too, where the naive, optimistic American stumbles into the dark history of Europe, you know, where its long ancestry of, of People who are related to each other, you know, nefarious goings ons, and then you don't know about it because you're a naive, optimistic American. And so I feel like this episode really picked up on that quite well. And then that kind of association of Catholicism with the Gothic, with the darker side of things. Um, you know, very Protestant America doesn't do well with that and it's it's seen as sort of mysterious and other and I think that, that that's some of where the energy of the episode comes from in my opinion and it almost has to be said in Europe
0: Oh yeah and Central Europe too right? Yeah
1: Central Europe that's right
0: That's what he said I was traveling through Central he doesn't say it's Germany but obviously it's Germany
1: y- Yes it's obviously Germany <laughs>
0: Yes a Protestant country <laughs> oddly enough
1: True, but uh, they chose to make the association even, you know, thicker with the with the otherness, the the mysterious otherness, not only, you know, of Europe, but of Catholicism. You know, I've got a friend who's got a book coming out on images of Catholicism in the Gothic, and it's it's a great book. So, uh, who,
0: who, whose book is that?
1: His name is um, Farrell Gorman.
0: I, I also think it can't be an accident that the the head hermit's name is Jerome, which yes. is a very freighted name for Catholic history. He's the guy who translates the Bible into Latin, and also he's he's a a very famous unpleasant person in church history.
1: Yes. I thought of that too, and when he gives that the Jerome in the episode gives the speech about how I'm a philosopher, and you know, and I thought, oh my goodness, this is definitely you know heading back to the the patriarch kind of i guess he's not a patriarch but the church father jerome definitely
0: yeah who who i mean famously so unpleasant that even saint augustine couldn't stand him
1: exactly so yeah and you know he seemed a little bit obnoxious in the episode as well so that seemed to fit to my to my mind quite well katie do you have anything to add to that
2: no, I just um, it would have been interesting, but maybe two on the nose if they'd put in, you know, because usually in pictures of St. Jerome, there's a skull. Um, it would have been interesting if they had had that maybe on the mantle or something. I was kind of noticing the objects on the mantle as I was watching because I wondered if they were meant to be symbolic. And I noticed a mortar and pestle and some other little ornaments up there, but I didn't see any skulls. So maybe that was a missed opportunity.
0: Maybe, maybe standards and practices wouldn't let them put a skull.
1: It's possible. It
2: is.
0: Yeah. And I, I can only assume it's standards and practices that make this not a religious order.
1: Yeah, that's an interesting question. I was, uh, I found that very curious that they they went out of their way to make it not a religious order.
0: They say it several times. Jerome confirms yes. it, and all, and also it's a, it's always called the hermitage, even though it's very clearly a monastery.
2: Right, because well, you can't really. I mean, it's not really a hermitage if you have a whole bunch of people there. You know, usually hermits are alone,
1: so it's kind of funny. Yeah, (laughs) kind of the the definition.
2: Yeah,
1: yeah. Well, Flannery O'Connor would have had them call it a monkery.
0: (laughs) 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 Much of the episode's philosophical foundation depends on this notion of evil. Uh, Katie, Katie, what is evil in the world of The Howling Man, and how orthodox do you find its vision?
2: It's very interesting because it almost seems to me to be this this dichotomy between what you mentioned earlier. You kind of alluded to him talking about regular evil or kind of regular bad things that happen because we all um we all sin we all do things that are wrong. But then he seems to speak about this other level of evil that's just purely from Satan, and that includes things like what he calls unnatural catastrophes. Mm-hmm. Um, he mentions war particularly weapons of war i think he might even mention um nuclear weapons by name um i don't think his, he does
1: i don't remember that, that. that they're alluded to i think by that weapons of war comment
2: because he talks about um the second world war and he talks about korea and um in that kind of tirade he mentions i don't know that he says nuclear weapons but he mentions kind of engines of war, weapons of war or something. And so you know that he puts all that square in the camp of Satan and says that that's why for a couple of years there hasn't been any trouble because they've had him kind of put away. And in terms of how Orthodox this is, uh, well, and let me just back up for one second. One of the things I think that he says that's the most orthodox is when he says to um, Ellington, I think is the, the American's name, that man's weakness and Satan's strength is that people don't recognize Satan when they see him. And I thought that was one of the more kind of orthodox statements about, um, Satan's workings in the world. And, um, so I, in terms of how orthodox it is, it's kind of, uh, it's kind of an interesting thing because the word tells us that Satan, you know, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking who to devour. And often that's interpreted as he's seeking to tempt people into sin. Not necessarily that he's prowling around causing tornadoes and, Wars and things like that. So the idea of him having the kind of power to to go around causing things like that, I don't know that that's you know a, a kind of totally Orthodox thing. Um, I mean in, in the Bible he he you know tempts Jesus and he you know afflicts job with God's permission though. so it's I don't know that 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 kind of image of Satan is completely, Orthodox, though it's it's a very interesting one.
0: And, and, and God's really nowhere to be found in this episode.
2: I know, I know. I kept wondering if he'd ever actually, Brother Jerome ever actually mentioned God. If he did, I think it was only one time. It was very strange. He kept talking about himself. And which, the Staff first, of
0: Truth, is that what he calls it?
2: Yes, the Staff of Truth, which doesn't have any scriptures written on it. And I told, I, I, I mentioned my husband because we were watching it together. That's one of the things for me that really worked about the episode and made it suspenseful is that the fact that he didn't really mention God, he seemed more focused on his own kind of holiness and his own ideas. And, you know, he didn't have any kind of Bible things written on his, you know, staff of truth. I really was wondering, is he really just crazy or is he telling the truth? And that was I, one of the things that, that kept me in suspense about it.
1: I had the same response myself.
0: Had neither of you had seen this episode before? No,
2: I had this, not. Is, this is actually my first Twilight Zone ever wow. for this episode. Yeah, Are I know. You? I ne- I never saw it as a kid. I wasn't really allowed to watch kind of things that were spooky or scary as a kid, and so I was encountering it for the first time this week. Wow. Well, hey. welcome to the Twilight Zone, Katie. I know. I'm excited <laughs> to watch more now. I definitely want to watch all the ones for all of the podcast episodes and then watch some more, too. It used
0: to air at midnight on our local affiliate, midnight between Sunday and Monday, and my dad would wake me up and we'd watch it together, which which means um, some of them really flipped me out because they flipped that- me out when I was a kid at midnight
2: yeah oh, that'd be so scary. I have a whole list of
1: ones that I want you to see, Katie.
2: <laughs> okay, great. um, send me an email. I'm super excited
1: to to catch up. Good, Christina. Do you have anything to add about
0: uh about the existence of evil in the howling man?
1: Yes, I think the main thing that they were trying to bring out about the Satan figure was him as a liar and and that's of course very orthodox to say he's the father of lies um and and to me everything else was kind of subordinated to that, you know, because there was a kind of a theme about who's telling the truth. The Jerome figure kind of cagely not lying, but really lying, you know, like, well, I said he was not a, I mean, said he was a howling, not a howling man. Or I said, what, yeah, howling. I have
0: no authority to imprison a man. He says, yeah, he yes. lawyers him.
1: Yeah. And you know, and and so there's that kind of evasiveness, but it seems to be so deliberately not trying to lie. That's why I think he wants to get rid of him, get out of get out of here, because I don't want to lie to you. Well, now I have to tell you the truth. It's actually Satan that's here. So I, I felt like that was emphasized quite a bit in the episode. And he lies
0: because the truth is so fundamentally unbelievable.
1: Exactly. Exactly.
0: Um, I, I'm I'm very interested in the fact that. Uh, Satan says, I won't call them evil. So he's, he's complaining about his treatment in this dungeon. And he says, I won't call them evil. They're sick. Yes. And man. I, 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 yeah, yeah, man, I, I can't, I can't help, but see that as part of the general psychologizing of human behavior over the course of the 20th century. That oh, that's, that's kind of a brilliant. subtle dig at that.
1: That's a brilliant analysis of that. I hadn't even thought of that, but that makes perfect sense. Yeah. Be, and that's part of the lying, isn't it? It's like, well, there you know I can't really call it what it really is, so I'm gonna make up something else to describe it euphemistically
0: and it's almost like Satan can't even use the word
1: Good point yes
0: the devil he's he's never actually called Satan I believe that would be that would be too no. too uh, denominational
1: <laughs> I think he's called Satan once but not to his face. <laughs> I don't remember I think it was called once do you remember katie i think he was called... i I, th- I think
2: so yeah i i think once but i don't remember if it was brother jerome or if it was um ellington later when he's got uh-huh. a hold of him and has finally like recaptured him or whatever um yeah. but yeah i think there i think there's maybe one reference but not usually oh, Jer-
1: the other. jerome gave a long speech about the various names that he's gone by do you remember that that's right Oh
2: yes yes that's
1: right so
2: i really
0: did watch this episode i promise
1: <laughs> I I, mean, I believe you. Well, one thing, I, I,
0: you, go ahead, I'm sorry.
1: No, I found it so sort of bizarre that I had to watch it a second time, and I thought, did I miss something? And then I, you know, I was like, okay, I, I see what's going on here a little bit better now. Well, what's amazing
0: about it to me is that I've seen it, I don't know, five or six times, and Jerome is still the scary one.
1: Yeah, he's very scary. Like, I agree he, with that.
0: If you were having a nightmare about this episode, it would not be about the devil. I mean...
1: No. The devil character is not scary at all, but again, that fits, doesn't it? It's, he's got to be a somewhat pleasing and believable figure, although I think it's weird how his arm is completely through the jail door there, the little cell window. Arms in this episode were freaky. Like, arm, people with arms would just suddenly come out of nowhere and grab you. Did you notice this? Mm-hmm.
0: I didn't. Yikes.
1: Jerome's arm would suddenly, you know, be on his shoulder, sort of reassure, reassuringly, but more like pulling him back and
2: kind mm-hmm. of me out. Or coming from out of frame sometimes. Yes. And um, that hey. was that was also creepy. I think if I was gonna have nightmares about this episode, I would actually have nightmares about the, the kind of the beginning and the end of Ellington because he never blinks.
0: Oh yeah. And you're when right. he's
2: recounting the story, I mean his, he she just has these intense burning eyes and he never, never blinks. And it's so unnerving, you know, and, and, and also just all all the Dutch angles, everything is sliding, you know, side to side. And I know that's meant to make us feel that he's about to pass out. He's kind of reeling, but it was hard to adjust to at first. And it's kind of discombobulating. I,
0: I yeah, don't know, really know the history of that technique, but this would have been before the Dutch angle was just a joke, right?
1: Yes, I believe that's right. Yeah. I found his, his whole acting job bizarre um, and his face, his lips were very almost pale, like white and whitened out the entire episode. I wonder if they, you know, did something to whiten his lips. It was a ghastly effect, in my opinion.
0: I'm gonna have to go back and look at uh, arms and lips because uh, yeah, because so. that's not something I thought about at all.
1: Yeah, I thought it, I thought he was kind of a. a just an off-putting character in general i mean ellington not he much seems much oh sorry no, that's hard do you get his face right there at the beginning on that you know what do they call that breaking the the fourth wall mm-hmm. right at the very beginning
0: yeah he, and, he addresses the camera with his story yeah. and then later it becomes apparent i assume it's his maid or somebody like that
2: yeah I think so. I it was it was very again having never seen the Twilight Zone and not really knowing how things work. I was very surprised when Serling stepped in oh, and yes. started talking to the audience. I didn't know that was coming. Serling yeah, always yeah.
0: always scares the <laughs> hell out of me when he just pops oh, into the frame, oh <laughs> like it, yes, it pans it, over and there he is. Ah! <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah, it's it was it was kind of unnerving. I didn't I wasn't expecting it, and then you know it happened again in the other episode, so I realized, oh okay this is must be standard but yeah, the first time it was it was a little bit strange and i think it's interesting now thinking about what you said Christina, about the arms and the and the lips it is in some ways this episode is kind of just a collection of all these disembodied body parts sometimes they just keep yes. focusing on different parts of people's bodies and it's it's just kind of a strange thing also i didn't think about it before but with the kind of sliding angles i get I do think it's meant to suggest that that Ellington is is sick, that he's not doing well. But it's still kind of strange because it it's coming from it's it's almost as if the viewer is reeling back and forth because he's just because he's moving from side to side doesn't mean the point of view should be if you're you know if we're watching him. I don't know. It's kind of a it's kind of an interesting thing. It makes makes it seem like the viewer, like you, the viewer, are also kind of reeling, and I, I guess it's in, intended to put you off balance,
1: perhaps. I think that's
0: probably right. I hope somebody else in this series, I mean, we're not really going to talk about it, but I hope somebody else will talk in detail about Serling's role on this show. Because it's an anthology show, the thing everybody remembers about the Twilight Zone is the Serling narration.
1: And mm-hmm. and, and he does eventually
0: start showing up in every episode. In the early ones, he, he doesn't do that.
1: His so distinctive voice is, you know, its it, you can't forget it. So...
0: Well, another thing that did strike me about this episode is that Ellington unleashes the devil in the upon the world specifically because he grants him mercy. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering, Christina, if this episode actually has something to say about mercy or if that's just something that's that, that happens.
1: You know, that's interesting. But if you go back to my earlier thesis about him being the father of lies, then... I think that helps to answer that question a little bit because the big worry of the episode is that we won't recognize evil when we see it. Right. And I think that is a worry that especially became prominent during world war II, right? Because you have what Flannery O'Connor would go on to call the tenderness that leads to the gas chamber, you know, this sense of where we're, we're going to help humanity here. We're going to, you know, I- improve the world with eugenics and and it's all a big lie, of course, and it leads to the gas chamber, as Flannery O'Connor pointed out. And so that worry that we're not going to recognize evil, it's just it, – it can then become, well, I think I'm I'm doing acts of mercy or I'm being merciful uh, to somebody I really should have taken a harder line with. I don't know. I feel like maybe that's what's going on there.
0: And, and I, I, I think it might have something very interesting to say to our own era – where empathy is the master virtue?
1: Exactly. Tolerance, which isn't even a virtue, is the master virtue. And empathy, being able to understand somebody else's experience and so on, um, we, we elevate these things very, very high in our current culture. and And so you're not allowed to, in a sense, call somebody out on a lie, right? You're just not permitted to do that. And so you could have people who are... Not to put too fine a to point on it, but having satanic ideas in our midst, and I, I love that little speech by Jerome where he's like, "There's sometimes they're just he's just a bystander, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Satan appears in all these different places, and sometimes he's a bystander. Um, but that people could be saying things that are just downright wrong, and nobody has the courage to call them out because of our culture and what the high priority we put on tolerance, and you know." Making sure that everybody's view is accepted, you know. So that that's what made this episode obviously strangely relevant today. You know, like call the devil the devil, right?
0: Right, right. Like, and, and it's interesting that the opposite of mercy, in some ways, in this episode, is truth.
1: The, exactly, exactly. Because they're and the brothers the devil, of
0: truth, or whatever, whatever their whatever their silly non-religious name is.
1: Brothers of truth, and it's the truth, the staff of truth that you know. And it's the devil that uses the word mercy twice. Um, I, I counted the second time I watched it, he used it twice. And I don't re- recall the brothers using it as all, at all. And it is. It's kind of set up against the truth-telling, which, which is fascinating for this day and age. But it was also so in the 50s, right? Um, Henry O'Connor had several pickups of that kind of idea in her. She made fun of that all the time, you know, a culture of, of letting things go. Just because, hey, it feels good to you. You might as well, you know, do it. Whatever it is, um, don't call anybody wrong.
0: It's also interesting in the context of the Twilight Zone, and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna mention any specific episodes because other shows are gonna tackle them, and I don't want to give anything away. But a great number of the very famous Twilight Zone episodes are about learning to see the world through other people's eyes.
1: That's very well said, Michael. I would, I I feel like that is one of the main themes is a different perspective, a slightly different point of view. What does it mean to, you know, look at this situation through a completely different perspective, and then you don't even know you're inhabiting that perspective, either. And and that's fascinating. I mean, of course, that's great. Literature is what literature does, you know, gives you those different perspectives. So I love that about the show.
0: I really think it's as literary a, a television show as there's ever been.
1: Mm, I agree,
0: Katie. Do you have anything to add about Mercy?
2: You know what? Well, I think that you guys did such a wonderful job of of exploring that. I actually i don't i don't think I have anything to say. I just i think that was perfect.
0: Well, let's move on to the masks then, and talk about things that are very imperfect. Here again, I'm about to give the plot of the episode, so if you haven't seen The Mask, which is uh, maybe the trippiest episode the show ever did, I don't know, there's a couple more that I could point to. Uh, do, do go watch it before I tell it. So, this involves an old man in New Orleans who is dying, and it's Mardi Gras, and his horrible heirs, his daughter, her husband, and their two awful children, uh, come to visit him, uh, just barely able to conceal their glee about him dying. Well his his final wish is that they have a Mardi Gras party in which they all wear these specially made masks which he says are made by a cajun uh, and they have special properties and the idea is you're supposed to wear the mask that represents the opposite of who you are so the uh so the father who is incredibly money-grubbing and uh and venal but imagines himself to be very noble wears the mask that represents somebody who's money grubbing and venal right because he doesn't understand who he is by the end mm-hmm. of the night the old man who has chosen the mask of death has died the rest of them take off their mask to realize that uh, their faces have molded to the faces of the masks and that while they're, while they're rich everybody now knows exactly what they are mm-hmm. so that's the plot of the masks it is, uh, it is weird and funny and a little bit creepy
1: I would say it's a lot
0: creepy. (laughs) There is, like, you know it's coming, I I, I suspect. Like, even if you don't know what happens, like, waiting for them to take off the mask is pretty nerve-wracking.
1: Yes.
2: I wondered if maybe they were going to be, I I, I thought they might die. I thought the mask might be in some way poisoned, but only until I saw that they, after they had put them on, they, you know, after the old man put his on that, he was still talking and I thought, okay, that's not the gag. They're not going to die. Something else is going to happen. And then I realized what was, what was going to happen.
0: Something way worse. It's also worth noting that man is a dead ringer for John Waters. Huh. Like, like he looks disturbingly like John Waters, right? Right down to the kind of a feet Southern accent, shall we say, and the uh, the gross little mustache that Waters wears as a joke.
1: Yeah, that's very interesting.
0: Anyway, other than Waters, uh, Christina, what what other texts do you see in the background of this episode?
1: Well, I've seen this episode a number of times, and it's just it's loaded with previous. Illusions. I and mean, to me, the main thing that's going on here is the whole Greek drama. You know, the word "person" came from persona, uh, you know, a character in a, a Greek play, and and so the whole idea that your person is seen in your face, um, and that these actors who are playing characters in a play—that's the person. You know, certainly it draws on that whole notion and then of course the grotesque I mean any literary representation of the grotesque is being drawn on here um, the idea that something would shockingly reveal uh, you know something that you haven't seen before but that you should have seen that's that's one of the things that the grotesque does best you know puts together two things that don't seem to go together in order to make uh, to make a revelatory. Statement. So,
0: and if you think of like O'Connor's famous definition of the grotesque, to the what is it? To the heart of hearing you shout, and for the almost blind, you draw large mm -hmm. and startling images.
1: That's right, and that her characters are so stubborn, she has to knock them over the head so that they can, you know, wake up and see things. That's that is what the grotesque famously does: draws attention. It, it, It like a train wreck, right? You you don't want to look at it, but you can't stop looking at it. That's the way this episode works. It is you don't want to be looking at it because it's so, so grotesque, but you can't help yourself and, and you, and you learning, you know, and they learn when they see themselves in the mirror, they have that shocking revelation, uh, that can only come through the grotesque. So to me, that's the powerful antecedents that are working here.
0: Katie, do you see anything else in it?
2: You know, and this is just a kind of a basic plot. Maybe, um, analog or but it it did make me think of of pose the mask of the red death sure Mm. where you have um a guest at a party who everybody keeps saying oh your mask is so wonderful but in in that case it turns out not to actually be a mask um but it's another one where it it kind of portends death and um this is not necessarily a a kind of literary antecedent for the plot but i did um in the in the episode the daughter not the, the the old man's daughter Right. The mom figure. She quotes um, a line from Romeo and Juliet. She
0: sure does. Yes. Yes.
2: Yes. And um, and I looked up because I couldn't remember. I couldn't remember where it was from and I looked it up, but it's kind of a strange choice to put there. It's it's Romeo, right? Yes, it's Romeo. And she says he just set scars that never felt a wound. It's act two, scene two. And it's after his friends have been jibing at him for being in love. And he says that line you know kind of you know saying you guys don't understand you've never been in love it's just it's kind of an interesting choice and it feels completely random and i i kind of wanted to ask you guys if you felt like there was anything in that choice or if it was just thrown in because it sounded cool
1: (laughs) i don't know yeah I, i i recognize that it was shakespeare and i i also thought it was kind of weird and wondering if they were just throwing it in there um because it was shakespeare
0: I wonder, like, there's so much in that episode where the uh, the old man, Jason, is the old man's name. He addresses the son-in-law and and tells him like how he doesn't appreciate art for anything but its its use yeah. value. And I, I oh, wonder sure. if I wonder if her quoting Romeo and Juliet in a completely inappropriate context demonstrates kind of the same thing about her. She is a she is a
1: buffoon. I like that. that yeah, that, I do too. Yeah, that works really well.
0: The other thing I would add, and maybe it's just because I'm teaching Purgatorio right now, but mm-hmm. um, I, I really see a lot of the Inferno in this, in the sense mm-hmm. that the whole point of the sins, the punishments in the Inferno, is that you have become the sin you you commit while you're alive. Once you're in the that's afterlife, what? your entire essence is the uh, is is whatever sin you've committed, and that's what happens to them um, here
1: too. Um, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, that's that's dead on. Yes. So that, that's that's
0: called contrapasso, just to demonstrate that I am indeed an English professor. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's good. Yes, that's good stuff.
0: Or, or you might think of like no exit too, because it it's fun to imagine these four living with each other after, um, after, they, after they take off the mask, because Lord knows nobody else is going to want to live with them.
1: Yes, they have to live now in the shadows of, of 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 the of community. I can't remember how Sterling puts it at the end. They, they are not allowed to live in community now. They're going to be on the shadows. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, the the mask very pointedly takes place at Mardi Gras. Part of it is a plot development. You need a reason to have them wear the masks. But I can't help thinking there might be further significance to setting the episode when it is set. What do you think, Katie? Am I way off?
2: No. Um, I, it's, it's an interesting thing because it, it is referenced a lot, but we don't really see any of it. It's kind of there's a, those kind of two brief shots of people partying outside and then and they but they're kind of trapped inside, not enjoying the fun. And part of it, I think, is that the Mardi Gras setting emphasizes the carnivalesque. And, you know, in, in carnival time, everything's turned upside down. And so, you know, those who might be of low estate maybe are, you know, king for a day and everything is foolish and crazy and out of the ordinary and upside down. And so... Are you just um, dancing
0: around singing the song from the Hunchback of Notre Dame, Katie?
2: (laughs) No. (laughs) No, not really. Not really. Um I actually, I, when we were watching this, what I said is that I just couldn't stop thinking of the crazy Mardi Gras scenes in the one James Bond movie that I can never remember the title of. Live yes, and Let Die? Other... Yeah, I think so. I think that's it. And and with all the crazy kind of voodoo magic, that's what I kept thinking of. But I, I do think that there is something to the, the kind of carnival idea, if only because in this kind of plot, the people who seem... Like they might be higher of a higher class, you know, the, the family that comes to visit the old man. You know, they, the, the, at least his daughter comes from money and then this is her family. They are terrible people and the servants of the old man are good people. <laughs> and so there's maybe a little bit of role reversal, not role reversal, but reversing stereotypes. Or, you know, they seem the, the more classy and refined people are the people who are in these servant roles. And so there's a little bit of a reversal. Also the old man who is kind of enfeebled, he's in his bed, he's he you know, he's kind of walled up in his house. He can't really go out anymore. So he's the one who is weak or vulnerable, but he exerts power over his relatives by using these masks and by creating this situation so that he's able to Enact this particular scenario and exert power despite his vulnerability. So that kind of, I, I think those kind of reversals maybe are a little bit suggested by the carnival atmosphere. Though I could be taking it too far. What do you guys think?
1: No, I agree with you there. I I feel like very pointed that it was set at Mardi Gras. I I lived in Cajun country for four years. I don't know if you knew this, Michael, but uh, I think I did. Yes, I lived there in Lafayette, Louisiana, just west of Baton Rouge. And so I went to a number of Mardi Gras, and Mardi Gras was a week off of school. and uh, Wait, is that so true? It, they
0: cancel college?
1: Uh, well, I was teaching high school at the oh. time. Yeah, it would be a week off of uh, of classes. But I, I wanted to say about Mardi Gras that it's a, a very appropriate time uh, and celebration to set this because, first of all, uh, Carnival is definitely associated with grotesque, and if you read Bakhtin, those definitely go together. But also, it's the it, it's a perfect time to set a morality tale, because here is this opening. It's supposed to be the night before Lent begins, right? And there's all this unabashed partying that goes on before the beginning of one of the holiest days on the Christian calendar. And this is a morality tale. I mean, Jason, the father, is so... Um, set on intent on helping people to understand these 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 horrible people to understand how um, immoral they become. So to my mind, that just made it very poignant to set it that particular night.
0: They're about to enter their own Lent, right? Where this this extended period of suffering.
1: Exactly. So extended that never ends. Right. They're they're trapped now. I like the, your comparison to no exit because. There is no exit, and and you know, and you go back to Sart. The the whole point is hell is other people. These people definitely will be a hell for each other.
0: Yeah, can you imagine? Um, mm-hmm. can you imagine well, sitting next to them on a two hour flight, much less spending oh. the rest of your life with them.
1: Oh man, the whining about taking the masks off right before midnight. It, they literally had five minutes left to go. You know,
2: that's what I said too. I thought, come on, guys, why if you're gonna c- complain like this,
1: why not start sooner? Yes. Mm-hmm. Maybe funny. they'd been complaining the whole time. Oh no, no doubt. Yeah, <laughs> they, luckily they spared us from that, right?
0: Yeah the the episode cuts from like six p.m. or whenever they put the masks on, so right before midnight. And uh, mm-hmm. yeah, I uh, I just assume I just assume they all sat there angrily looking at each other the entire night. They certainly weren't <laughs> playing parchisi or anything.
1: Nope, they weren't.
0: I, and I'm sure I don't have to tell either one of you, who's both of you who study gothic literature, that that New Orleans is the gothic city in America. Like this, absolutely, is, the city oh, of sure, ghosts.
1: Yeah. And, yeah, so and, you live in this wealthy, you know, place. It's obvious wealth, uh, you know. So it, it's it's definitely like the upper crust of you know downtown New Orleans, and so it's suggestive of decadence too, uh, and all the things that come with that. So.
0: Yeah, there's something almost Faulknerian about this episode. I mean, Faulkner doesn't have magic very often, but up until that point,
1: he but was, he does draw on the grotesque and the Southern Gothic, you know, aspects of the grotesque, and so there's definitely a Faulknerian feel to it, like A Rose for Emily's, very similar in some creepy ways.
0: I have to say, I picked both of these episodes before I knew who my co-hosts were going to be, and it just kind of fell down that both of you study the Gothic.
2: Yeah, that worked out. We didn't say either, too, earlier. I probably should have said this earlier, but I I guess it's better now because we can refer to both. But the the kind of what's happening in both of these episodes is what would be your kind of Walpole style of gothic where everything that's magical is actually real. As opposed to kind of Anne Radcliffe gothic, which is more kind of like Scooby-Doo style (laughs) is the best way to describe it, where it's all just a person in a mask. or. the curator. Yes, yes. It was a real person so that it's all kind of actually part of things that can be understood in our world and it's not actually supernatural. The Twilight Zone is the epitome, I think, of kind of Horace Walpole style gothic.
0: At least these two episodes. They, they have others sure, that, are, yeah. that are closer to the other style you described.
2: Oh, okay, okay, and I guess I'll learn that too as I, I take my journey through all the episodes I missed.
0: It's really an amazing show. Like it
2: really is. You're
0: gonna enjoy it. Yeah, yeah. You, you have. I, I wish I wish I had as many episodes I hadn't seen as you do because yeah. uh, going through them is just uh, it, it is a pleasure. i There are still I don't know twenty or thirty I haven't seen, so um, I still have some pleasure in front of me. Well. um one of the things, the first things that Jason Foster says to his assembled heirs is that they are the quote four most changeless people upon this earth. <laughs> what on earth does he mean by that, Christina?
1: Well, I thought that was uh, pretty obviously a reference to the fact that they had become caricatures of themselves. Right? These are people for whom no growth or transformation has has happened could happen. They, they're they just closed off from seeing themselves as they are, which of course is how you start if you want to change. You have to acknowledge who you really are. It's
0: the first step so, into the gate the of purgatory.
1: Yeah, well, exactly. There you go. And it, it kind of really made me laugh when I realized that it, it the episode in some ways just literalizes the whole if you keep making that face, your your face is going to freeze that way, you know. <laughs> <like your mom. laughs> it kind of literalizes that fear, you know, because because what the episode, the sort of deep truth of it is, I think that your habits of acting a certain way become who you are, and they they had acted it within these habits of avarice or clownishness or whatever else their whole lives, and there are lots of conversation that the old man. Has where he tells them bits and pieces of things about them as younger people, particularly the the son, the grandson. You know, as a younger boy, you used to torture animals or, or whatever, and he's like, "Well, I'm beyond that now." And it's quite clear he's not beyond that. But he's he plays on thing. the
0: football team, Christina. Nobody who plays <laughs> football could be a sociopath
1: <laughs> <laughs> or a clown, or <laughs> of course not. You know, but I just thought that was a really interesting, almost uh, Alistair McIntyre type commentary on the habits of, you know, making you, you live into a certain set of, 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 of lines, a, a form, a mold, if you will. And they literally get their face molded into that. So I, I, to me, that's what that meant. They they can't change. So they'll just be hardened into the worst versions of themselves.
0: And again, to return to Dante, the two places that are changeless are hell and heaven.
1: Good, good reference.
0: Sorry, I'm, I'm yeah. just about to finish teaching the the Purgatorio, so it's the only thing I no. can think about right now.
1: Well, I, you know, I wish that I had more cause to teach that. And every time I hear you talk about it, I think, you know, goodness, I need to get back to that text.
0: I'm not sure the students like it as much as I do, but uh, that's okay.
1: Katie, do you think that a thing? Truth with everything? <laughs>
0: <laughs> do, you, do you have anything to add about uh, changelessness?
2: Um, no, though it, it, it is interesting to me that um, the implication—I I felt like there was maybe a small implication that at least the, the mother figure had changed at some point because, in theory, the, the old man didn't raise her to be the way that she is
0: when yeah, she was, I was a child.
2: That myself, like how yeah, responsible like that- is he? Oh, I know I, I kept thinking, you know, okay, but you raised her. So, you know, is was her is her personality the fault of the mother who's never mentioned ever? Um, you know, I wasn't I wasn't sure. I mean, has she been away so long, she's changed because there was also a really pointed reference to the fact that they have come from Boston. I don't know what that's about either. if it's kind of a north versus south thing, but um, but yeah, I, I kept thinking, okay, well, if he didn't raise her to be, you know, a completely whining coward, then when did the change happen? And why then, you know, did she, um, if she, if he did raise her differently, how did she become what she is? And then kind of just keep going in that vein. I thought it was kind of, um, that was something I kept wondering about, you know, and, but other than that, I don't, I'm not sure. Um, I think you guys have said some, some great stuff about the changelessness. I think we've kind of covered it uh, as much as we, as, as much as we can.
0: Don't you think the episode kind of implies that he is also terrible?
2: You mean the old man?
0: Yeah, like his, his relationship with his doctor, for example. He is delighted when his doctor uh, is cruel to him, because at least it means he's being straightforward. So, I mean, the old man seems like the sort of person who would be a complete jerk to everybody and then justify it by saying he's just being real, mm. you know?
2: Yeah. Yes, I, I, I still, I still liked him, but that could be partially because he reminds me so much of my own granddad. <laughs> um, I have a, a kind of crotchety granddad who is the type who likes to needle to see what will happen, um, mm-hmm. because he really wants to see you keep your composure, because, then he's impressed. So, um, I, be I think careful that if I... <laughs> you ever go
0: to his deathbed, Katie, don't put, on any, don't put be... on any masks. I'm
2: going to be masks, Katie. I'm going to be watching out, though. I feel pretty secure. I'm a, I, I'm one of the favorites because I went to college and completed college. My granddad uh, grew up in the first housing project in Atlanta and was a firefighter and never went to college. So he has a very high respect for education. So I think wow. I'm OK, but I'll be really careful.
0: Well, there are other Twilight Zone episodes that deal with race more than this one. I, I believe if you listen to City of Man, you've probably already heard about one of them. Um, but I am struck by the fact that The Masks begins and ends with Foster's African American servants. We've already touched on this a little bit, but Katie, do you think the episode has anything meaningful to say about race as opposed to just class?
2: Um, I, I think I think a little bit. Um, there's though it's interesting to me the the woman who's in the first scene. She speaks to his, his butler um, as if she's also a servant. But I noticed that she seemed to be wearing kind of street clothes. Like maybe she was leaving work. So I'm not totally sure what her role in the household is. She's, she's uh, putting flowers in a vase in the beginning. But I do think that there's a point being made about the, the fact that um, these people, again, are, are, are the most – other than the, the, the doctor – Who seems to have a great concern for the old man? They're the most humane people in the episode, and they're not. um, And they're they're depicted in a way I think that's very neutral, which is interesting. It could have gone so very differently. I also think it's extremely interesting that nowhere in the episode is there any kind of reference to or um, use made of any kind of Creole um, like Mm. heritage. I mean, there's no you know reference to the Cajun
0: who makes the mask, but that's it.
2: Yes. And even that, I think, is, is interesting because that's a slightly it's Cajun. It's not Creole. And those are kind of, you know, it, it, it could so easily have been kind of Creole voodoo. And, you know, um it could so easily have been that the servants are kind of sinister figures. And, you know, it's it's almost the complete opposite of that terrible James Bond movie with, you know, all the crazy, crazy sinister voodoo. And so it's just it was interesting to me that they were presented in a way that was relatively neutral and and very positive and and some of it is class but I, but I do think some of it's also race and I don't I don't have too much more to say on the episode though I do have to say that when I was watching it I was very strongly reminded of a time when David and I went to a wedding this was probably I don't know eight years ago we went to a wedding in Savannah Georgia and at a, a, a men's club and and not like the shady kind of gentleman's club. But I mean, like a men's club as an old British gentleman go to their club kind of club. Sure. And um, the wedding reception was held there. And, you know, to be a member, your family has to have lived in the city for like hundreds of years or something. But we were made so uncomfortable because we went to this wedding reception, everyone in the room having fun, everyone at the wedding is white. And we realized that the only people in the room with us who are who are African-American are everybody who's serving. And everybody who's waiting tables and everybody who's making food and they're all wearing white coats. Katie, and did Paula felt... Dean
0: did Paula Dean um, <laughs> cater this wedding?
2: <laughs> no, no. And <laughs> I had been in a restaurant before, but no, it was uh, it was not. And 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 we were so uncomfortable. We thought we we feel like we've stepped back fifty years. And it was one of those things that I, I never forgot it because I had never encountered anything like that before. And I kept thinking about that in this episode because it, it just that kind of feeling and, and just that kind of old style feeling too. I, um, the, the staircase, this, the house in general, but especially the staircase in that house reminded me a lot of Scarlett O'Hara's house and gone with the wind, the film. Mm. And which also, again, brings to mind certain ideas about black servants and, and, you know, what those relationships might be like. And so I think there was a lot of stuff dancing around the periphery race wise, But 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 it was definitely not super um, kind of heavy handed um, or explored in a deep, deep way in the episode. But what did you guys think about that?
1: I felt it was on the periphery, too, but um, but definitely there. And it's wise to to point out that there is focus on these African-American servants and their sort of unfailing kindness, but not. Nothing mushy or sentimental or anything ruinous like that. They're right. just kind uh, characters.
0: They're good in exactly the way the white people in the, in the episode are bad. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And, and in fact, at the beginning, they they are talking about how uh, how terrible the airs are. Like they recognize this. They they are entry yeah. into the moral world of the episode. Yes. By the way, Katie, have you ever been on a cruise? yes yeah because that that is where I uh, that is where I had that experience because every every, uh, every server on my cruise was Filipino
2: oh mm, yeah now that you know it's funny now that you say that it was I had a very similar experience too when we I took the one cruise I've ever taken right after college
1: it was very uncomfortable very supposedly fun thing I'll never do again
0: <laughs> <laughs> Victoria wouldn't let me mention that essay on the uh, on the cruise
1: <laughs> you wouldn't hear me stop talking about it. If I, it.
0: <laughs> I I did I did go to their library and noticed they didn't have a copy of that book for some reason. <laughs> 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 well, I'm sure there's much more to talk about in these two episodes than I have uh prepared us for here. So, as we close, I'd like to go around the horn and ask you guys uh what what I have left out. What else is worth discussing in either of these two episodes or in uh in the twilight zone. In general. And Christina, let's let's start with you.
1: Yeah. I don't you know, not so much about the episodes, but as I was reflecting on the two of them, there's such moral allegories really. And I I began to think about our current day and it doesn't feel like we have the same stomach for allegory today. And I'm wondering why. Hmm. Have you seen Black Mirror?
0: yes do do you oh my goodness Black Mirror is usually held up as the 21st century Twilight Zone I haven't seen it although I want to do you think oh. it? do you think it has the same sort of allegorical feel
1: you know what that's a good example it it, it does and uh that show is creepy and you need to see that right away. What's well, technology,
0: um, right? You're, you're my friend with whom I talk about, <laughs> about the evils yeah. of technology.
1: Yeah. And it's not just about that though. It's, it, it's wrapped in, but it is wrapped in a larger sort of moral allegorical framework. That's exactly right. And you know, what's interesting about those episodes is they're so severe that I can only watch one about every two or three months. Wow. Yeah and then I have to kind of work back up the courage to be kind of flayed like that again. Uh, have you seen this show Katie?
2: I have not. Um I am a little bit of a chicken when it comes to anything that is is creepy or off-putting. I when I as a as a, again as an adult because I miss so much as a young person when I was watching through Twin Peaks with my husband, we were kind of binge watching, I guess, trying to get through and we kind of had to stop because Mm -hmm. watching even two or three episodes a night of Twin Peaks was getting to me. I was starting to feel like a little bit depressed, a little bit, you know, darkness in my soul. And so I haven't seen Black Mirror, but it sounds like it might be a little too intense Mm -hmm. for me. But if it's really, really that good, then I might have to try to watch an episode.
1: Yeah, I would recommend that you do it, but I could understand if you just couldn't stomach it. You know, the first episode alone will just make you
2: crazy. Well, I don't
0: want to be made crazy.
1: Well, okay. I know. It, it sounds, it <laughs> sounds, <laughs> you know, way, right. No, I've want. been
0: wanting I've been wanting to watch it, but I haven't gotten around to it.
1: Well, get around to it soon then, Michael.
0: I have to finish Luke Cage first. Mm Katie, uh, anything, anything else you want to mention about these episodes or the twilight zone? Although I guess these episodes are your experience with the twilight zone. Yes.
2: I know, isn't that so interesting that that's all I, I, that's all I've got to reference? So it's it's kind of um, I just a, just a few things that I thought were kind of things that that stuck out to me, and some of it is just kind of in production. I thought, um, you know, kind of back to the tilting angles in the first the first episode we talked about the helling man. I thought that was super super effective the way that it made you feel off balance, but also I think it was you know especially for the time I thought the transformation from the from the devil's kind of innocuous prisoner form to his totally yeah. full, full-scale Satanized... cartoon devil. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I thought that was very well done for the time and I thought it was interesting the way that they um did it so that he's kind of walking along this gallery or colonnade and then there are these pillars and then each time he passes by a pillar when he emerges he looks more satanic. I thought that was interesting that they went through a more lengthy transformation that they didn't just have a kind of finger snap and, Oh, now he looks like Satan. I thought that was kind of interesting. Mm. And, and also in that first episode, I, I thought it was really wonderful. The way that the, the, the guy, that, the man that they cast and the way that they kind of focused so much on his eyes, um, because in his kind of innocuous prisoner form that his kind of charming or seductive form, he has these very large kind of, he has kind of mild eyes and he, he looks very vulnerable and, you know, it's it's not hard to understand why Ellington would want to give such a person uh, a break or to show mercy to him, and and then it's so different from his final form that I thought it was a really nice kind of visual representation of what they were talking about, and uh, on the other one too, I, I I just have to say that one of the one of the the creepiest things, and I don't know if there's anything kind of theoretical to say about this, but one of the things that, that creeped me out the most about that second episode is just actually when they are talking, wearing masks. So you can't Mm -hmm. see the lips move.
0: Yes. Yeah, it is creepy.
2: It's very creepy, particularly, um, particularly the old man with his kind of skull mask. And, and I don't know if it, it's just interesting that they're, that they have voices, but in in some way they're also voiceless when they're in those masks, because you can't, you don't have the, as a viewer, you don't have that connection of seeing them speak. So that was something that was interesting to me. Also, just as a side note that was just so funny, when we were watching these episodes last night, our daughter got out of bed. She was not supposed to be out of bed. We have a four-year-old. And she came in, and we happened to pause on the skull face. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 and what she did is she came in, and she said, a skeleton. <laughs> And was very excited. For some reason, she loves, anytime we're in the store right now, because it's Halloween, she loves skeletons and she loves skulls, and she's not one bit afraid. And it was so funny that that was her response to old Jason and his skull mask was excitement. And, you know... An interesting skeleton is on the screen, and I thought I have to share that story because it's so fu- it's such a funny response given what the episode's about as a whole.
1: Christina, yes. the
0: Grubbs children are the weirdest children I've ever heard about in my entire life. I, I have really? been trying to get David <laughs> and Katie to do a uh, parenting podcast for years.
2: That wow. is funny. He has never told me that. I did not know that, Michael. I didn't know that you wanted us to do that. That would be so fun.
0: Do it. Do it. Tell, tell us all how to raise children like yours. Yeah.
2: Well, I'm hesitant to offer that much advice, given that our oldest is only four. Maybe when we put in a few more years uh, parenting, we might have a little more to share.
0: Doesn't Arden sing the doxology before she goes to sleep at night?
2: We do. We sing the doxology and the Gloria Patri every night before bed, and so she knows both of them. Um, Our son can't sing them yet. He's only almost two, but she, she knows them, and she likes to sing them.
1: Wow.
0: Christina, I've got a. i have got aii think I think you owe it to our listeners to tell Katie which episodes to watch on the air, so that our listeners in yeah. a similar position can also do so. Uh,
1: you know, the titles would not necessarily come right to my mind. Yeah, so. you don't
0: want to give anything away.
1: Yeah. Yes, I. I don't. So. Um, yeah.
0: But do tune Sorry. in, everybody, to the uh, the other episodes on our our on our network this week. Um, we did this of course the Christian Feminist Podcast will be coming up on Friday, Book of Nature on Wednesday, Sectarian Review on Thursday and City of Man came out yesterday and uh, again it's all mixed up as to who's on what episode so you'll have to tune in to find out where your favorites are, and your your least favorites I suppose (laughs) thank you guys so much for coming on the show, this was a a blast I wish we could just do a podcast going through all the Twilight Zone episodes
1: (laughs) that would be fun that would be
2: great and thank you thank you so much for having me i i joked with with david this week that like lucy ricardo i'm finally on the show and it's it was a big deal for me i was i was very excited so i really appreciate being able to participate
0: this is your first time isn't it
2: yeah i've never been on chp before so uh it's been a lot of fun
0: but you're a frequent guest on christian feminist podcast and you have hosted uh the profiles too
2: uh, yes, only one Profiles episode, but yes. I, and actually, this semester especially, I'm going to be on Christian Feminist Podcast a lot. We've got some really fun stuff planned, so I'm excited.
0: So um, go listen to that, listeners. Christina, do you have anything you want to plug? <laughs> no. <laughs> Christina's book, uh, Prophets of the Post-Human, is excellent. It came out a couple years ago. We did a, uh, a Profiles show on that. Maybe my favorite Profiles of all time, actually. I had a blast <laughs> recording that.
2: I loved it. I loved listening to it too. I wanted to say that before I forgot, Christina. Oh, well, thank you for that. I appreciate that. I enjoyed
0: it. Do go read that book. It's Notre Dame Press, is that right? That's right. All right. Well, the Christian Humanist Podcast is a production of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our intern is Amberly Copeland. Till next time, this is Michael Farmer saying, Let your sin be strong and let your faith be stronger.